Just this year, International Justice Mission celebrated 25 years of working around the world, protecting people in poverty from modern day slavery. And what's incredible about that length of time is in that time, we have also field offices where we've started operations and we've actually passed them along to the existing governments. Um, so there's whole maps that show where IJM doesn't work anymore, let alone where we are currently present. Hello and a warm collisions YYC. Welcome to my guest today, Mr. Robin Padani. How are you, Robin? Great, Tyler. Good to see you. Robin, always a pleasure. You and I always get into some good chats, which we've been doing here before we push record. But as my audience knows, I've been very active and very open about my support of International Justice Mission. And this has been a journey that I like to bring my audience on because I'm going on it too. And I went from not knowing even the scope and, and, and kind of reality of this of this global slavery slavery problem, which kind of put me back on my heels, to then meeting your organization. And, you know, I'll be honest, the hope started to grow in terms of what is out there to change this. But through getting to know your organization, I've got to know different angles of it, different aspects, the reality of the work you do on the ground in, you know, 17 countries through 29 offices around the world. But then also what happens here at home? And, you know, our conversation today is going to be linked very, very tightly to the reality of fundraising because these things take money, they take people, they take support, they take all the things. So they still do follow the path of any organization where you've got to have some cash flow coming in. And you've been with the organization for two years and you're director of development and mobilization for Alberta for International Justice Mission. So let's just jump in the, in the old pitch elevator, which is not really what this is. But tell me a little bit about your role. You've been with the company for a couple of years doing this. What do you do day to day? Like, what's your world look like? Yeah. Depends on if you ask uh, my kids or not. I, uh, I asked my four-year-old one time, what do, what do I do? Um, and he says that I, I answer emails and I talk on the phone. So if that would be in short, what he says I do. Um, Accurate. <laughs> but uh, as the Director of Development and Mobilization for International Justice Mission here in Alberta, um, primarily I'm focused on helping to raise the funds that are necessary to fund the justice system transformation work International Justice Mission is doing around the world. But the other piece of it, is, apart from fundraising, is this aspect of mobilization and advocacy. Um, I often think that Canada, we, we feel a little bit like the insecure younger brother to the states. And so we don't always think of ourselves as having influence on the global stage. But whether it's uh, corporations here in Western Canada that are multinational or global, or whether it's our own um, federal government that has reached beyond our borders, we have an opportunity to really help influence justice systems around the world to make it so that people are freed from slavery and that their local justice systems do a great job of protecting them. So those are kind of the two pieces of my role, connecting with our supporters, which are uh, individuals, foundations, corporations, and then also helping to mobilize, whether it's community advocacy or the government, to be able to help uh, stand up for the voices of those oppressed around the world. Fantastic. That was very well said, my friend. From a day-to-day -day perspective, thinking about, I really like, because when I first saw your director of development, I kind of get that one, but the mobilization piece, I didn't necessarily understand. So thank you for adding some clarity to that. But let's bring it back. And you and I have had this chat a lot over coffees and, and, and in variety of settings around the similarities to fundraising and going out there, kind of beating the drum, if you will, and pounding the pavement and all those jokes around business development and ultimately introducing, you know, oftentimes a group of individuals to a new idea or a concept that in this case is big and it's hard to get your head around and it's, it can be uncomfortable to ultimately people writing checks that allow you as an organ to be part of an organization that can create this, you know, I love you know, justice system transformation. I love that. Part of the IGM change model, which we'll talk a little bit about here, is it's not just kicking down doors and rescuing people from slavery. It is creating long-term change. And we'll, we'll kind of work that through the conversation so our audience can kind of even learn a little bit more what you guys do. 
But talk to me about the reality of out there introducing this idea into the marketplace to new to new you know potential donors, potential buyers that buy into this idea. How's that journey, and how much is it like literally cold calling versus introductions? Talk to us about the nuts and bolts of of what a data looks like on the fundraising side. Yeah, do you remember that meme that went around for a while? It was like what my friends think I do, what I think I do, these sort of different photos. I remember one yep. time chatting with my uh, my wife's uncle. We were down in the States and we were talking about fundraising and he said, I would rather die than do your job. Um, <laughs> I thought, oh, okay, well, tell me how you're really right up feel. there with, pub- with public speaking <laughs> right. for most people, right? <laughs> right. I said, you know, tell me how you really feel. I think in his mind, he's picturing that kind of cold, cold calling, um, getting people who've never had any sort of interest in the work that you're doing and trying to, to find a way to drum up enthusiasm and interest. Even from a business development standpoint, I'm sure for your listeners, that's not true when you're thinking about actually raising capital for a startup or a venture. And even if it's a relative unknown, I mean, you have a pool of what you would think would be your warm prospects. What are your what's your real target audience? Um, And then when we're talking about something like um, business development and and some of the parallels in fundraising, you know, you're not begging. Right. You're not just asking someone to give you something um, that they have no interest in doing, uh, especially when you're talking about fundraising. I was chatting just yesterday with one of our supporters in uh, Saskatoon. We had a great conversation over lunch hour over Zoom. And I was telling him the story. I was just down visiting IJM's offices in Guatemala just this August. And I'm telling the story about this 15 year old boy who I had a chance to meet. Our work down there is around the focus of um, addressing violence against women and children. It's got this massive city, four million people, Guatemala City, and uh, the levels of impunity at which children were being abused, whether it's physical or sexual violence, um, it was just brutal. And, and early stats for our work in Latin America, in Bolivia at the time when we started, you were more likely to slip and die in the shower than ever see a day in court if you were found, if you were um, actually trying to abuse or sexually abuse a child. And so you think about the level of absolute impunity that people could operate um, and just and, and hurt and abuse children in these communities. So this little boy, I was chatting with him at one of the aftercare homes, and I remember thinking afterwards of just this tremendous impact that IJM had being able to help him and his family walk through their case to be able to see justice. Um, the social workers that are being that are able to be alongside him for the entire process so he doesn't feel alone. So he has, gets that day in court and gets justice, and so it changes that community. When I think about that impact, and I was chatting with this supporter just yesterday on the phone, you know, we're both sort of marveling at the fact you're not you're not asking people to do something they don't want to do. You're inviting them to be a part of something really compelling. This is compelling vision we have of a world where um, kids like this boy I met down in Guatemala City are actually safer uh, because of their support, because of the donors that invest their funds. And it is it's hard earned funds that they've you know built businesses or or they have. Uh, successful investments, and they have opportunities to choose to give to any number of things. Same with right. you know venture capital and, and startups for business. There's so many things that you can choose to say yes to. So it's never enough just to be like, well, we have a good cause. Well, that's great. Everyone's got a good cause. What you need to be able to do is, is connect that compelling vision. And for some people, it's not for them. And that's fine. You're not trying to twist the arm of someone who has zero interest in what you do. Mm-hmm. But for that target audience of people who really care about the, the impact and this vision of the world, this compelling vision that you want to put out there, then those are the people you want to talk to. And then you have the confidence to, to really step into those conversations, not apologetically, not begging. I mean, you think about it, if, if you're a, a business startup and you think you have an incredibly compelling solution to problems that other businesses have in the world or whatever it is that you're offering in that space, and you believe enough in it that you're actually going all in, you know, this is your venture, this is your vocation, um, you should feel 
confident enough to actually invite other people in it too. And it's the same for me. When I think of the work that International Justice Mission does around the world, I believe in it so much that I'm not ashamed and I'm not afraid to talk to people and invite people to be a part of it because I think it's worth inviting them to do and I think it's worth for them to, to invest in. I really appreciate that. So for you, no question the passion and the, the motive and the purpose behind this clearly underpins a lot of the energy that you I've never known you I've never met you or chatted with you you didn't have energy <laughs> to talk about this but I'm assuming that's also very self uh, there's got to be a self-propelling nature to the purpose behind what you're doing to keep telling that story and telling that story and telling that story and you know you're not you, this isn't a job where you get to mail it in yeah. or, or, or that you can be effective if you do hmm? yeah no that's true and, and I would say um there's tempting, it's tempting to have sort of that, that, you know, that founder's story or myth. Uh, and the same with any kind of vocational career where you think there's this one instance of motivation where you think this is the reason why I do what I do. Um, I don't know if that's necessarily true for me. I mean, it might be true for some people, but I think for me, um, it's been an evolving and ongoing self-motivation. And it comes as I learn more about a lot of times the, the people that we serve at the end. Um, we talked earlier about justice system transformation. And I know sometimes when they, people talk about international justice mission, and you start talking about systemic change, for some people that's really compelling. For some people that kind of glaze over and it doesn't have that same heart connection. But at the end of the day, what we're talking about is the children, ultimately. Um, one example, or children or men or women that are, are in slavery today. Um, one example from a country I can't specifically name because IJM's work is actually just, just beginning there. Um, okay. But we, we started some recent um, work in South Asia along the issue of child sexual exploitation in brothels and bars. And in this particular region, the stats were um, worse than our investigators had seen anywhere. I mean, these are hardened investigators that have come from um, Kolkata and Mumbai and red light districts and, and a career in criminal investigation, child trafficking. And they were telling me this story in this, uh, this community that they were doing this, this early um, prevalence study work. And they said the stats from a prevalence standpoint were about 50% of the people that were in the sex industry are children. And so they're not willful volunteers in this, they're, they're being exploited in this. And he was telling me the story of this, this child um, who as part of their investigation, you know, they're, they're going literally, as you can picture kind of these gritty scenes of walking the streets in this, in this community, they're going to these brothels, they're posing as, uh, as buyers, and the brothel owner is showing them the children in the back. And there's this child that he was actually able to in that context connect with parents who didn't know that this child had been um, exploited and actually been trafficked and they were able to connect them back. But just this story of this child sitting, pleading with this investigator to help him, uh, help her, excuse me, get out of this situation. When I think about that, like that to me is, is that story is maybe, I don't know, a month old. I heard this just recently from one of our investigators and it, it gives me that newfound motivation for why I do what I do. One of my colleagues down in the States, she used to say, you know, when she would envision being uncomfortable, chatting with a potential uh, funder or investor in IJM's work. She pictures a child like that, you know, trapped in a brothel somewhere around the world in modern day slavery and having to explain to her that, I'm sorry, I was too uncomfortable to have that conversation with this potential funder. And that's why I didn't ask for the funds to help get you out of where you are. Um, now, that's a little heavy handed. I might not. Oh, Robin, now you, went, you went right for the heart on Alvin, my friend. I might not put that guilt on myself every day, but if I ever course, need a little but, bit but of a kick I appreciate the, the context. Yeah, if I ever need a bit of a kick in the ass, like that for me, when I think about these kids or I think about these families um, that don't necessarily have someone in their corner standing up for them to be able to help protect them from this violence, but we can. We can be a part of that. So, yeah. 
That's a, that's a, ooh, that's powerful. I'm going to ponder that later today. Uh, when you think about the journey of introducing someone to this idea, this concept, uh, you know, again, and I want to be, be clear when I say that most people are aware that there's, there's a problem going on in the world. I think uh, for me, I had no idea the scope and the context of the 50 million people and some of the new stats that have come out that are enslaved globally and all that that entails in quote unquote modern day slavery. Uh, when someone first gets introduced to maybe the scope or the magnitude, when we're talking about a, someone becoming a major a major donor from going, I, I, I'm aware, but I don't really know, or maybe I don't know about your organization specifically, International Justice Mission, to then going on the journey with you as the fund developer, what's that? Is that six months? Is it a year? I know it varies, but what do you typically see? Like we're looking for the the middle of the road. This is how it kind of goes. Yeah. Not this is exactly the days and that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I think there's some industry standards out there that say it's around 18 months. So you're looking at about a year and a half cycle. That that not that might not be though from someone never hearing about international justice mission ever, um, or some vague awareness to actually choosing to make a, like a significant transformative investment. And I think it really depends on the person. Like I've I've had stories in fundraising of um, phone calls that within you know a couple months materialized in a five million dollar gift. Um, but those people have come to that table prepared because they've heard about it and other things. And you don't always see yeah. that that journey. Uh, you don't always see the, the customer journey or the, uh, the donor journey. Um, and we've talked a little bit about this idea of, you know, the sales funnel. There's there's the opportunity to be able to to bring a specific opportunity before a funder or an investor. Um, but before that, there's usually a whole host of awareness work that has to happen at a mass level to be able to yeah. build that sort of connection. And I would say one of the things that I've, I've loved about being able to present International Justice Mission to our Western Canadian audience here in Alberta and, and, and some of the other jurisdictions I connect with our supporters in um, is just this unique value proposition of our work. I mean, everyone's talking about well, what is it that you offer that's unique in any sort of space. One of the things I love about International Justice Mission is that, one, we're not trying to recreate the wheel. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. We're using the existing justice system wherever we are operating in our field offices around the world because those are the only actors in those countries who have the agency and the authority and the responsibility, frankly, uh, to protect the most vulnerable people in their country from slavery. The other thing, too, that's really beautiful about International Justice Mission's work is that we measure what we do. And so if you're a funder and you're, you're weighing op options of where you want to donate, we can be able to share with you measurable impact of some of the work we've done around the world and the <clears throat> excuse me and the ways that we continue to measure that uh, in all the new projects that we go about uh, throughout the world and the other thing too is it's not uh, proprietary to IJM we want this to be a solution that is sustainable within these communities so it's not dependent on us being present indefinitely um, just this year international justice mission celebrated 25 years of working around the world protecting people in poverty from modern day slavery and What's incredible about that length of time is in that time, we have also field offices where we've started operations and we've actually passed them along to the existing governments. Um, so there's whole maps that show where IJM doesn't work anymore, let alone where we are currently present. Today's show is brought to you in partnership with International Justice Mission. Thank you to Philip Calbert and his team for the incredible work they do to bring awareness to the global problem of modern day slavery. I'm proud to share with my audience that I have formalized my relationship with IGMs for becoming one of their Canadian ambassadors. Why? Because I believe we can end slavery in our lifetime, and I want to use my platform to be part of that mission. For many of you, hearing that statement may be a rallying cry. For the rest, it may be a moment of, wait, what? Slavery? Is that even a thing? For me, up to 12 to 18 months ago, it was the second. I did not even understand the problem or that it existed at the scale that it does. Currently, there are over 40 million people affected by modern-day slavery. 
40 million people. After a chance meeting with Philip Calvert, National Director of Development for IGM Canada, my eyes were open to the reality that poor people face the world over, a reality of violence that stops them from ever moving forward in their life. At first, this made me uncomfortable. Then it made me downright mad. But then it gave me hope. It is support of groups like IGM that will allow us to reach the goal of any slavery in our lifetime and give hope to people who may have none. I know this can be an uncomfortable conversation, and that is okay. That's why we're going to go on this journey together. Stay tuned as we host guests from IGM who will help educate us as well as upcoming events that where we can meet the amazing people that make the work they do a reality. Please join me in supporting this incredible organization by visiting and donating to their cause at www.igm.ca. We will only succeed in any slavery in our lifetime if we work together to make a difference. I'm curious, you touched on something about the need for measurement and third party and independent measurement, which anyone who's in business immediately goes, yeah, we, you know, what measured, get, what gets measured gets, gets done. Have you seen that shift? You've been in, you know, I see just looking at, I'm creeping on your LinkedIn, like, like I'm a professional creeper as we all are these days, yeah. but you've been in the sector for 10 years since 2012 from a fundraising perspective. Have you seen a shift from donors that are, is that becoming more important? Yeah. What are your measurements? What can we see? Like, yeah. has that changed? Cause you think. I kind of think, and I want to say that it has, but you've been working in this space for 10 years. What, what have you seen? It's so funny that you mentioned that. I literally was reflecting this morning, getting ready to come on your podcast, Tyler, and I'm going, it's been 10 years. Like I've been in fundraising for almost <laughs> a, a decade now. And yeah. um, I would say it has. You know, I think um, there might have been a, a different generation that was quick to be able to just write a check, send it off to a charity, and just trust that they'll do whatever the best um They'll trust that they're going to do what's best in that space. We've also had a lot of unfortunate incidences and public ones too, where charities have mismanaged funds, um, where, and I should say more specifically, people within charities have mismanaged funds. I don't think charities necessarily as a whole um, are a problem. I think that's it's, a good, that's a good, that's a good, very good. Uh, I appreciate the, 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 the kindness of that clarification. Let's not throw the whole charity out. Let's talk about maybe individuals making bad Yeah, choices. it might be <laughs> a specific person at this international NGO who thought that it was within their, um, you know, their rights to embezzle these funds. That thing has, a, <laughs> it, it completely, yeah. but it erodes this trust across the sector, right? It does. And so the problem is um, there's too often a race to the bottom in charitable sector work where uh, a lot of the questions you do get is, you know, how much can you do with how little? Like what's the shoestring budget that you need to be able to operate on? That's uh, the wrong mindset. It right? is. And, and you know, the, the question really has to be probably more about what's the real tangible impact. And when you're talking about substantial investments to make um, substantial change, we're talking about 50 million people around the world trapped in slavery. We do need to be um, making serious investments if we're serious about seeing that number change. Having said that, though, we want to make sure that we're providing that financial transparency and also that mm -hmm. measurement that can give confidence to supporters that their funds are used well. And honestly, the big side of us, International Justice Mission, one of the great things I love about talking about our work in the North American context in Western Canada is we're often really led by what happens in the field. It's our field office staff who are often pushed by the host governments that we've been invited to work uh, with who want to see these measurable stats. They want to know that this is an issue in their countries, and they also want to know that their efforts uh, as a, a justice system are making a difference. And so it pushes International Justice Mission to have rigor and scrutiny in our reporting and measurement on things like the performance of the justice system, the prevalence of the crime, uh, how long does it take for a case to get to trial, what happens at the appeal process, is it completely overturned? These types of things are measurements that we can use to get a snapshot when we begin our projects, but also at a midline point as we measure throughout, and then at the end line we're able to say, 
are people more measurably protected from modern day slavery? Is the prevalence lower? Are, um, is, is the justice system functioning better? How long do ta- cases take? Well, and that's a positive story for that, that specific country, that jurisdiction to be able to say, hey, no, we are more secure, which then maybe can lead to more investment in their communities from outside businesses. Like, you know, there's a whole story that goes around that, that I believe that I love that goes beyond, yes, we protected people and the secondary benefit could be long-term, short-term economic gains for that region, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, curious about, you made a comment about, you know, there was a time when people just write a check and send it off to the charity and feel good about it. And, but some things have happened and we go, well, maybe that's, maybe we don't do that that way anymore. Maybe we want a little bit more. If you're talking to two potential, like, you know, donor qualified individuals that maybe they haven't donated yet, and one is 40 and one is 60, how different is that conversation? Yeah, you know, it's hard to say that it would split so so tightly. I just picked number. No, I just picked I know, numbers, yeah. by the way. No, and, and I, I would that say... Wasn't, that wasn't ageism, anyone who's <laughs> listening. That was not positive or negative towards any group. Yeah. I just appreciate that different cycles, uh, you know, and if I'm 30 and I'm 60, I have different cultural biases. Totally. I, I look at things differently. It's just reality. Well, and the other I've, thing, lived, I've, li- I've lived through different generations of life. The other thing I'll say, too, is that there's different um, different ages and stages of life, too. So I've, I've got a, a funder that I work with in Alberta, um, you know, prominent... Um, land developer and he and I have had some great conversations he sits on a number of boards right now he wants to be at a stage where he has more scrutiny on his donations his investments to international justice mission been a longtime supporter um, and at significant levels but as we've talked and I've, I've presented specific opportunities and I might I might have assumed that he's coming with a desire for more scrutiny and more specificity on how the funds are used and he said to me honestly Robin I just don't have the time right now to give it that much attention you know he's got four kids uh, I think the youngest is maybe seven or eight. Um, and so when you think about like the stage, it's a busy life. It's, yeah, it's, it's a, a busy stage life. of life he's in. He's on multiple- I like what you said, ages, ages and stages. And, and so thing. that age, age is less relevant to the stage you are in yeah. more so. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. I noticed with him, he said to me in a different season of life, when I have more opportunity, I want to be more involved. And that's going to in, in that investment or increase in investment is going to require more scrutiny and more um, more reporting. But I'm just not there right now. Um, but there there is definitely a desire, I would say, amongst younger philanthropists. Um, yes, they want the transparency. They want to be invited in. You know, they want to be sincere partners in the work that we're doing. And I think that's fantastic. You don't want to just be a silent partner in the back that's just writing the check. Um, One of the things that we're doing here at International Justice Mission in Canada is establishing a a venture council. Um, And so these are individuals who, yes, have capacity and been able to connect with us in meaningful ways. But they also have expertise in council that, frankly, we don't, uh, either from their years in specific corporations or in industries. Um, And so they're able to be able to see things that we don't see, uh, ask the questions we don't even know to ask. And those types of um, that type of level of involvement, it it often comes with increased investment. But the expertise that someone can bring is also invaluable. It allows us as an organization to jump forward by leaps and bounds. There's there's one well, example, and 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 the, and the network. Let's be honest. Yeah. You know, nothing much. Nothing in life happens without a relationship somewhere. Especially yeah. with something like this, where you're getting to know someone over an 18 month period of time. That's a relationship which ultimately leads to trust. And you know, you got to build that pyramid. The trust is at the bottom of the pyramid, or the, or the rest of it doesn't doesn't hold doesn't hold together. Uh, talk to me a little bit about donation amounts, if you can, like, mm-hmm. cause you threw the $5 million number. Yeah. So a lot of people went, Whoa, I don't have $5 million. <laughs> so am I, am I not, can yeah. I not participate? And yes, we want the big major donors because they're going to have that big monumental yeah. impact, but you know, $1 plus $2 equals a million dollars eventually. So yeah. I don't want to over, I don't want to overlook that when you're dealing with, I guess what, what is, what constitutes a major donor is that, do you guys have numbers and do way you categorize this? And I'm getting really into the weeds cause I'm really curious and I don't want anybody to feel that they're, they're, 
their 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 dollar doesn't matter because it, it I, I know that's not true. Yeah, yeah, we we definitely have um, metrics that we use internally just to be able to measure um, the amount of investment that we spend in time and energy in terms of our connections because uh, sometimes we're deluded into thinking that our donors are thinking about us as much as we're thinking about them. It's not true. I could spend my whole. <laughs> it's it's. I mean, I like to think that I'm that important, but it's true. They they've got kids and they've got businesses they're running and they've got dogs to walk and it's minus thirty out and they got to go scrape their car and these types of things don't necessarily factor in uh, every waking moment of every day. So we do want to stay front of mind, especially as I mentioned that eighteen month funnel of being able to build that awareness and connection and, and not disappear, right? But um, when we think about allocating our resources as an organization and, and every charity does this, um, businesses do this too when they talk about sales at some point you have to realize that uh, is this person satisfied with the level of, of service we provide and if i if i spent you know 10 extra hours this month connecting with this individual would it actually make a difference or, or am i just misallocating those hours elsewhere um, i appreciate that and yeah. and that's always attention too because you never want someone to feel like they're less important um, but i have donors who give at you know the twenty-five thousand, fifty thousand dollar a year uh, threshold but they've told me just send me an, uh, an annual report give me a phone call once a year like we don't have to go for okay. coffee yeah. and so it depending on on the level of of engagement they want um, that's another piece that's really important because you want to you want to really honor that person. I think there's a temptation. We read things about industry best practices and we have to shove this on this relationship because, um, well, I read a podcast or listened to a podcast or read a blog post that says these are the things that every donor wants. I mean, every donor is not the same. Every, hmm. every customer is not the same. And so you do that to your peril. What's more important is that are you actually listening to them and providing them the level of service, the level of engagement that they actually ask you for. Um, and then they actually feel cared for respected in the process. They're not just a, a silent partner funding it from the sidelines, but they're actually someone who's cared for in this process. And that to me is important. I think we've, I've heard this said from our colleagues in the field, um, and it's a different context, but he was talking about cases we do in the Philippines around child sexual exploitation. And he was talking about, this attorney was telling me these, the importance of keeping kids out of the courtrooms, uh, because as as much as we need that testimony to be able to see justice done for these kids, uh, those that traffic them imprisoned, and real deterrent uh, allowed in the community so that others know that this is not acceptable. He said it's important not just that we win, but how we win. And I've, I've thought about that even just in terms of what we do in term locally in fundraising in Western Canada for International Justice Mission. I don't want people to feel like we're running roughshod over them just to try to get at their checkbook. I think we have a tremendous... Um, uh, well of, of enthusiasm, of passion, of, um, of innovation in Western Canada. And if we just chase the funds and we don't actually care for people and invite them as, as long-term partners and actually ending modern slavery, um, I think we might win, but how we win might be, uh, might be harmed in that process. And so yeah, I'd much rather short-term yeah. win, long-term loss yeah. potentially is, um, thinking about, Western Canada, thinking about local, thinking about dividing dollars. And like you said, there's so many good causes and they're all good. Let's mm -hmm. just say that universally. Like there's so many things you can get behind because there's no shortage of needs for help. 
You can look, you can drive downtown right now and there's people homeless right now and it's minus 30 to, to your point. Is that a challenge or is that a conversation that comes up often? Because oftentimes, first of all, whoa, wow, 50 million people, it blows my mind too. Oh, this is somewhere else's problem. This isn't here. This isn't happening here. And I know there's, that's a whole nother conversation that it happens unfortunately here a lot more than you then I think most of us as Calgarians will speak locally, actually know or believe. I've talked to some organizations recently about just the special task force that exists at the Calgary airport to stop sex trafficking and to stop human trafficking and the things that happen here. But do you ever run into a challenge where donors see, like new donors, and I'm talking about people getting introduced to it, go, well, yeah, I, yes, absolutely, I want to support this, but this isn't really a here problem, that's a somewhere else problem, and I'm focused on local. I want to do things that are in my, in my city. Is that a factor that shows up because this is such a global phenomenon? And Again, I don't want to eliminate Canada plays a part, unfortunately, embarrassingly so. But at first blush, it's really easy maybe not to catch that. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple of different things I'd say to that. that there's two, actually, I'll say. Uh, the first is that I'm never going to try and force someone to care about something they don't care about. Um, if there's a local charity and a cause that really is, is near and dear to someone's heart, then I, I by all means, like, be blessed and encouraged to go do that. I, I definitely come from more of a mindset of abundance than scarcity. I'm not looking to try and squeeze every last piece of the pie out. I, I think that, especially when we think of Calgary or Western Canada, I mean, there's tremendous generosity in these provinces. Um, it's incredible to see. and and. And the amount of um, social impact we've been able to have when we roll up our sleeves, when we um, free up the resources that that we've been uh, blessed with to be able to actually make a tangible difference in the lives of people, whether locally or globally. I mean, it's incredible the impact we can have. And so I would never say to someone that they have to care about something that they don't care about. That would be the first <laughs> thing course. I would say. <laughs> the next thing I would say, though, is um, back in the 1800s, uh, when we talk about slavery, that's often what we think about. We think about the transatlantic slave trade. We think of the Civil War in the United States, and we think of um, cotton farms. We don't necessarily think about the abolition movement in conjunction with that. But the reality is, the only reason why we talk about slavery as a wasn't a thing of the past or didn't we abolish that is because at some point there was an abolition movement. At some point, there were people that decided that the plight of their brother was actually theirs as well. And that even though they themselves weren't in slavery, that they were complicit in it. Um, there was this incredible, actually, uh, it was a, a pamphlet by an abolitionist in the UK. And she was talking at the time about this attitude people had around uh, gradual abolition. Basically like, well, we should slowly abol uh, abolish slavery. And this incredibly fiery woman wrote this pamphlet basically condemning that and saying, um, we are, you are either on the side of slavery or you're on the side of abolition. Now that it's was a, a very it's, stark, it's, bi it's binary. <laughs> and it was a stark, but she, but she went further and she said the products we consume here in, in England, um, she was writing at the time, she said in a direct, are directly tied to slave labor. And the reality is whether we know it or not in Canada, this is also true. There's supply chains that we're all more and more aware of because a, a, a boat in the Suez Canal turns the wrong way and, and suddenly the book that you had planned to get launched this year is not going to get launched. Or, you know, the, the shelves are, are short because of all the things that aren't coming from, from your suppliers. We're more aware of supply chains now since COVID than probably ever before. But a big part of that is also where these supplies are coming from and what labor is being used to produce them. And increasingly in Canada, there are there's a piece of legislation right now, actually, that's before the House of Commons. It's, I think, in the second committee reading that's going to actually require Canadian corporations of a certain size to report on whether or not there's forced labor slavery or child labor in their supply chains. And there are real teeth to this legislation in terms of the fines that are going to be imposed on companies that don't provide adequate reporting on that. The other side of it, too, is that 
the purchasing power does actually affect the lives of people on the other side of the world, whether it's the chocolate we eat or the coffee we drink or the desk we're sitting on um, and the materials that were used to produce it. There's a connection there um, and we're a very globally interconnected world. So it's, it's important for us to be aware that whatever we do here, especially if you're talking about the drive to the bottom in terms of prices, you might be saving however much on this side of the world, but the cost is being passed down the line to someone else who's not free to live a life of flourishing that we just enjoy and enjoy an abundance here. Um, they're actually forced under brutal violence to be in, in some form of labor slavery um, because of our convenience. And I do want to be that stark. I think some people get uncomfortable and a little bit squirmish when I when I say that, but we should care about it because the reason why there's 50 million people enslaved around the world is because we're allowing it to continue. I think there's no one that would say, and I'm going to be blatant and broad, would say, I don't care about it. But there's a big difference between I care and what am I willing to do? <laughs> like, just to be blunt, like, oh my God, that's atrocious. Oh, but I'm going to go buy my cheap thing at whatever I want. Anyways, I won't take that too far because I can get all ranty on that one too really quickly. But what are we willing to do? And so the legislation that's, that's, and I've heard about this before through chatting with you guys, is that something IGM is like, are you advising on that? Or is that you're aware of it and you're supportive of it because it fits your mission overall? But also, is that something where IGM, are they, is IGM as an organization involved in that, in the, whether it was the drafting of that legislation? Just curious of, like, again, bringing it back home a little bit. Yeah, so we, we along with other charities locally here in Canada, uh, are invited often to be a part of um, not so much advisory committees, but kind of more informal meetings with those that are drafting this legislation. Um, there's a standing committee on global affairs as well um, that IGM's had a chance. Our, our CEO, Anu George Kanjan Topol here in Canada, uh, had a chance to go speak in that um, forum. And that was specific to COVID and sort of the impacts on forced labor slavery. Um, but these are the types of conversations we continue to have. And this is that piece of activation and mobilization I mentioned earlier. Um, we have, again, more more reach and more impact than I think Canadians understand in terms of the global scale. And this type of legislation, uh, I, I'm, I'm sad to say, but it's actually very late coming to Canada. Uh, the United Kingdom actually has legislation that's uh, more restrictive in terms of the, the punitive um, consequences for companies having forced labor slavery. And it's been in place for a long time now. Australian legislation is further ahead as well. So Canada has some catching up to do. But this is that other voice that IJM has here locally and why we want to be, you know, 25 years now working as a global expert in modern day slavery. We want to continue to, to, to be those thought leaders here in the Canadian space so we can have conversations with corporations who are interested to say, I want to know that I have responsible procurement. How can I do that? And, and we can be a partner yeah, in helping think, to do that. And I think, you know, uh, sustainability and a lot of organizations are, 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 starting to make that move that we want to be different, but you don't always know how, right? And as an organization, you might have something that stops, starts at a, at, a, at a high level strategic objective, but then like, okay, we need to implement it tomorrow. You just look across the, the ESG acronym. There's a lot of, I don't know how in there. And I want to be respectful that we are all on the journey. And I had a conversation with a, a head of school for a private school here or a, a, an independent school here in Calgary. And she talked about, you know, just implementing change in that system. She goes, they're saying you want to implement. And then there's being respectful of just the journey and the time that it takes. Yeah. It just resonated with me of like, like we, we say, okay, we're going to make this change. And if it's not done in 24 hours, we somehow feel that we failed or that we're held accountable to failure. But these are long-term, you know, change models. You mentioned, you know, IGM being around for 20, 25 years. Curious, is it getting harder? Everyone, you know, we got 
not very f favorable forecasting for 23, 20, 2024, potential the R word is floating around. I didn't want to say it out loud. <laughs> I think in Western Canada, we might be a little bit insulated. And some of the economists I've been reading, I think we're in a really good part of the world from a recession perspective. We think about donors that are here. But when you're out there having conversations, are people starting to get a little tighter? Are people getting some concerns around, ah, you know what, I wrote a check, this check last year. I'm not sure about next year because I'm a little bit worried whether my business or my personal is going to be impacted by high inflation interest rates. Like, again, this isn't a but this isn't an, an, an economy podcast, but you cannot listen and hear the media at all without feeling a little bit of like, maybe I'll hold my wallet a bit closer. Have you yeah. experienced that? Have you felt that yet? Giving such a funny thing because um, nobody has <laughs> to give, right? It's not like paying your taxes, uh, your property taxes. Uh, nobody has to do it. And that's one of the things that it, like astounds me every time someone writes a check to International Justice Mission, anytime someone helps us to be able to fund a rescue operation around the world. Nobody had to do that. Um, but they chose to. And so to me, that that inclination towards generosity, it always comes from something that's self-motivated. And there are real constraints, for sure. We've seen that in the conversations I've had anecdotally with some of our supporters. Uh, they might not be in a position to be able to give what they wanted to this year or what they, they did last year. That's one of the things, though. Um, there's that um, proverb that floats around. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Um, I mean, I see that here when it comes to our our connections and our supporters in Canada and in, in Calgary specifically where, where I operate, we have tremendous supporters across Alberta, Alberta who've been with us for, you know, 10 plus years now. International Justice Mission globally has been around for 25 years, but some of our donor relationships date way back. And and what's incredible is that they've they've been able to walk with us and see transformation they've been a part of. They've seen IJM's work start, um, you know, kind of 1.0 direct casework, one case at a time, to now operating at a, a very strategic government level and seeing whole tra transformation in justice systems. Mm. They've seen that because they are partners in that. And the other side of it is I'm partners with them. I don't want them to, <laughs> if ever they feel like they get, you know, call me up back and say, hey, I'm not able to give this year. And I say, well, fine talk to me next year. I mean, that's not how it works. I, I care about yeah, them and I care yeah. about the impact that they get to have in the world. The other thing that we've seen too, is that it's, it's a, a direct model of what we've seen in the field. I said this earlier, Tyler, how one of the coolest things about international justice mission is that we're learning from our field offices all the time. It's not like, you know, the, the brain of the operation exists in North America or in, in Canada and that we're always the ones feeding great innovations out. We get incredible ideas that keep us um, nimble how we're doing things. And one of the best has been this, this persistent, perseverant partnership model that we've been able to build. Um, started really back in 2011 with our IGM CEO, Anu George Kanjanatopal, when she was in South Asia. She was tasked with actually implementing a $9 million grant from Google to see if we could train other partners to do what iGEM was doing in terms of our methodology. Um, but that model of change is allowed us to be able to partner with others together. So we're going further together. The other thing, too, is that we're, we've been in it for the long haul together. And so you see justice system transformation if you're willing to persist for 5, 10, 15 years in a jurisdiction working with the same you know, public prosecutor's office, law enforcement apparatus. But if you're just in for the quick wins, you're not going to get a chance to see it. And so one of the things that might be hard about this year is is looking at it as a as an isolated moment in time. And yeah, I mean, there, there are some concerns in terms of economic forecasts and progressions. But our hope is that we're not looking at IGM's work or even our partnerships with our funders here as a just snapshot in the time that any even the conversations I'm having with new funders that are coming connecting with us just this year. Um, I'm excited to keep talking to them next year and the year after and the year after, not only in terms of what they can be a part of and the impact it has in their lives, but also the fact that they can be a part of transforming work 
that we won't even know what this is going to look like until five years from now when we get to sit back together and say, isn't it crazy that there's this one community where slavery was once rampant and now it's almost non-existent? That's what I'm looking for, these long journeys together. And what I, one of the things I love the most about your organization is that change, the model of change and the long-term persistence and the ability to kind of work yourself out of a job, as I've heard it said by members of your team, because we empowered and we educated and we supported the local infrastructure to make a difference. You know, Chiang Mai, Thailand being one that I think of, a place that, you know, I've visited many times and, 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 and love, but didn't know that side of it. And then when I learned about it, I learned about it on the positive that that, 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 that community had made that change and said, you know, no longer in our backyard. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen overnight. That's a long-term vision and I do appreciate and whether it's drawing parallels to business development it's a longer term and you need to take that if you're looking for the quick wins even if you get it that's all you got <laughs> and that doesn't that doesn't pay off Robin I really appreciate not only the work you do and getting to know you over the last over the last couple of years but your passion and how well you articulate this thing that you've chosen to put your energy and your purpose behind it shows through in spades and I really want to give you a you know a hug and a high five <laughs> for that because it takes people like you out there telling the story over and over again in ways that resonate with people and that's not always the telling that means the story's got to change to, to adapt to who wants to hear it and what the about values to them, but being that there's so many opportunities and angles to help and support from local, from legislation to influences and introductions all the way to dollars and cents, you know, to having the, having that impact. Uh, let's make it, let's, we'd be remiss if we didn't go for an ask. Anybody can donate at any time. Uh, like what's the best path? Is yeah. it, I go to just go to the website, I hit donate now. Give, give me the, give me the quick roadmap on how to get there. Yeah. So IJM.ca, that's IJM.ca is IJM's website here in Canada. It's uh, we have charitable status here in Canada, so if you're looking for a charitable tax uh, deduction and your donation can count towards that, um, you're, happy, you're, you're welcome to make a donation there. Um, some of the numbers we share, if, if people are in a season where their business has done well, um, some of the rescue operations that literally I get texts on my phone uh, that are happening every week with IGM's field offices around the world, costs $10,000 Canadian roughly when you factor in the, um, the investigative work, social care, and, and the salaries of those that are involved to be able to pull off those rescues. And so one rescue operation roughly brings about four people or four children uh, out of forms of modern day slavery. And that's a $10,000 donation. Um, and if others are looking at a different amount, or maybe they're just hearing about us for the first time, I mean, feel free. IJM.ca is a great way to connect. Some of the other pieces I mentioned uh, in terms of you know, uh, supply chain and procurement, and even some of these questions around uh, how do we influence legislation here in Canada. If anyone's interested, find me on LinkedIn, Robin, R-O-B-I-N, and then Padani is P-A-D-A-N-Y-I. Um, I'm not always great at posting, but I'm great at connecting. So feel free to find me on, link- <laughs> nice on LinkedIn, nice and I'll, I'll, I'll be happy to keep that conversation going with you. And I would encourage people, if you want to learn more, I did two fantastic episodes last year with Anu, George, and with uh, Philip Calvert, uh, the, the head of... Uh, uh, who's here in Canada and his does amazing work and his uh, Philip is so passionate about it as well everyone I've met in the organization I love because you guys are so as a team so bought into what you do and you have so much heart for it and that to me just resonates and it creates a whole different culture unto itself but I did do podcast episodes last December so Philip Calbert and George just go and search both those in the search bar on collisions and uh, you'll be able to find great you know different perspectives because I'll circle around telling the same story from your own angles which is what I really love about having multiple guests on talking about quote unquote the same topic 
topic because the story shows up differently. And I guarantee if you listen to all three, you'll walk away with like, oh, that resonated with me there and that resonated me over there. Like, I do believe this is something we all need to get informed about because it's not going to go away by itself. It's going to go away with deliberate effort. And that's something that I love about IGN because you guys actually, you know, quote unquote, get shit done. And, I, and, I, and that means a lot to me <laughs> as thank somebody you. who's looking for their dollars in there and their voice to be impactful. Thank you, Tyler. And thank you for leveraging this great platform you've built here, connecting with business leaders to share about iGEM's work. I appreciate it, Robin. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed our chat, man. Thank you. Yeah, likewise.